1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 145 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How you doing? Great. Good. Um. So interesting week here. We just got uh, inflation numbers uh, that came out for March, which were uh, extremely high. But um, so far, the market's responding positively to that, and I think it goes back to that notion of inflation expectations matter more to the market than actual inflation, because we have to always remember that the stock market is forward-looking. You took the words out of my
2: mouth. I mean, the market's going to be anticipating these types of numbers. And the market's going to be forward looking and saying, ah, when are they going to peak? Right. And, you know, just like when you're in the middle of, say, a stock market sell off or you're in the middle of, you know, scorching hot inflation numbers, it
1: feels like it's going to continue. But statistically, it doesn't. Right. Right. So we, before we dig into that a little bit more, we'll go over uh, the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 11th. S&P 500 index is down 2.6% for the month and down 7.42% for the year. The Dow down 1.07% for the month and down 5.6% for the year. The Nasdaq Composite Index down 3.86% for the month and down 12.36% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 4.25% for the month and down 11.65% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, down 1.94% for the month and down 7.85% for the year. Three-month T-bill sitting at 0.77%, the two-year treasury yielding 2.55%, and the 10-year treasury yielding 2.82%. Um Just a few big news headlines from the past week here, Matt. Um, I think the big story in the news cycle this past weekend was the lockdowns in Shanghai. there's a lot of noise around that on um, you know, major media outlets and social media sites. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Um, you know, in the longer
2: term effects of having you know a large city with 27, 28 million completely closed
1: down. right. Right. So, you know, people are wondering if that's going to lead to more supply chain issues. Um, What it means for COVID. Is COVID getting worse over there? So um, I got a piece kind of on on this topic where I kind of
2: give my opinion on it here in a little bit. Okay, a little bit of foreshadowing.
1: I like it. Uh, And lastly, as we kind of alluded to already, inflation numbers came out this morning. Um, Inflation accelerated to 8.5% in March as higher energy prices and food costs hit consumers. Um, Again, the market is responding positively, at least today so far. Uh, It's about just after 11 o'clock in the morning on April 12th. So we'll see how uh, the market finishes the rest of the day and the rest of this shortened holiday week. Yeah, I mean, inflation, we got to remember, on the
2: Consumer Price Index, the largest component, roughly a third of it, is shelter. And with um, interest rates on mortgages going up, housing starts, you know, the highest they've been since 06, you know, those prices, you know, have some headwinds. And that should hopefully help those inflation numbers looking forward from today. Right. You know, the other big component obviously is food. And if you dive into the subcomponent of food, one of the largest components of inflation there is energy costs, the cost of diesel fuel to transport that food from, you know, the where it's created or grown to where it is actually, you know, consumed. If you start to have some prices in diesel come down as well, That is also really going to help this inflation picture. Yeah. So when you're in the middle of it, it feels like it's not going to get better anytime soon. But it's surprising how quick these things can turn. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: Moving on to tweets, articles and research from the week. Uh, The first thing I have is an article written by Max uh, Kiroik. I think I'm saying that right on modern money. Uh, title or excuse me, and this was on March 25th titled, Why do gas prices rise quickly but fall slowly? So I think this is kind of a phenomenon that a lot of people are scratching their heads about, Matt. They're like, well, of course, when when oil rises, then gas prices go through the roof. But when oil prices come down, gas prices don't reflect that like they do on the way up. So uh, I thought this was a pretty good piece. Okay. So Max starts off by saying it does feel like prices at the pump rise whenever crude oil is climbing, but are much slower to fall when crude prices are retreating. Oil prices jumped about 40% when Russia invaded Ukraine to a high of over $130 a barrel. Gas prices quickly followed suit. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, gas rose from $149 per liter to $173 per liter between February 21st and March 9th. They've stayed that elevated love at that elevated level despite oil falling from 9479 per barrel as of March 15th. And I think this person is obviously from Canada, so that's why um, they're talking about gas prices in liters, liters not gallons. Um, he says there's supposed to be an intrinsic tie between oil and gasoline. Why don't gas prices move with the price of oil uh, in both directions? So he says, rockets and feathers. The way in which gas prices move with crude prices has a name in the industry, rockets and feathers. When oil prices rise, gas shoots up like a rocket. When oil prices fall, gas drops like a feather. This pricing practice is enabled by a phenomenon that is fairly unique to gasoline, advertising prices on big signs along roadways. It's an example of radical transparency that has been destructive for consumers. What's the point of boldly advertising your price if everyone else charges the same amount? With the exception of some rebates offered at the pump, gas stations effectively do not compete based on price. Further, the product itself is a commodity that has to meet minimum quality standards to be sold for use in vehicles, and the experience provided by different gas stations is roughly the same. These are therefore businesses that aren't competing on price, a product, or consumer experience. This is a perfect recipe for cartel-like behavior that ends up costing the end consumer. While price fixing is extremely difficult to prove indisputably, it clearly plays a role in this instance. The stations aren't really signaling price to consumers, but rather to each other. The station, or excuse me, stations will uh, raise prices immediately to reflect in increased input costs, but they are hesitant to lower prices as there is no competitive pressure to do so until other stations do. Economics 101. Gas is a commodity that represents a high degree of price inelasticity, meaning that people don't tend to cut their consumption very much as prices rise. That doesn't apply for products and services that are price elastic. If the price of carrots rises too high, for example, then I'll start buying broccoli instead. We don't see this with gas, and there's nothing else I can put in my car to make it go if I don't want to pay for gasoline. Of course, this can eventually be uh, reaching a tipping point. As petroleum products get more expensive, then alternative energy sources become more attractive, not just from an emissions perspective, but also economically. An old adage in economics states that the cure for higher prices is higher prices. Even a price inelastic good like gasoline will get to a point where households simply must reduce consumption due to budgetary constraints. Oil futures briefly went negative in April of 2020 when demand dried up because people were confined to their homes. Falling prices resulted from reduced demand. You want gas prices to fall, then drive less and lower the demand. So kind of took a trip back to college there and our economics classes with price elasticity and inelasticity. But I haven't heard those terms in a while. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I really like the term of rockets and feathers for him because that kind of puts things into into perspective. So, um, you know, it's a good point, because if you go to a corner, um, you know, where there's gas stations on two of the four corners, usually the prices is exactly the same. Right. Um, but if you go from, let's say drive from Dayton to Columbus, then prices could be different, but, um, you know, it's just an interesting, uh, commodity, uh, and the way the pricing works for that. Interesting. So, uh, if people were curious on how that worked, uh, I hope that helped out. Uh, second thing I had was an article in the Wall Street Journal titled most medical debts to be removed from consumer credit reports. And this was written on March 18th by Anna Maria Andrits. So um, starts off by saying the biggest credit reporting firms will strip tens of billions of dollars in medical debt from consumers credit reports, erasing a black mark that makes it harder for millions of Americans to borrow. Equifax and TransUnion are making broad changes to how they report medical debt beginning this summer. The changes which have been in the works for several months will remove nearly 70% of medical debt in collection accounts from credit reports. Beginning in July, the companies will remove medical debt that was paid um, after it was sent to collections. These debts can stick around on a consumer's credit report for up to seven years, even if they're paid off. New unpaid medical debts won't get added to credit reports for a full year after being sent to collections. The firms are also planning to remove unpaid medical debts of less than $500 in the first half of next year. Medical debt is a huge burden for many Americans, and emergencies and unexpected diagnoses often result in giant bills that can easily overwhelm people who otherwise would never miss a debt payment. The unpaid bills uh, end up on credit reports, sometimes lowering consumers' credit scores and hindering their ability to get affordable mortgages, car loans, and other credit. Uh, The Consumer Financial Protection Board said it has uh, research that indicates that medical debt is less predictive of a person's ability to repay other kinds of loans. Um, Still, medical debt collections on an individual's credit report can impact their ability to buy or rent a home, raise the price they pay for a car or for insurance, and make it more difficult to find a job. The main customers of credit reporting firms are lenders, which use the information on credit reports to assess the likelihood that a loan applicant will pay their debt back. The credit reporting firms have removed a swath of negative information from collections firms in recent years, including unpaid library fines, traffic tickets and gym memberships. So I didn't even know that they, that they credit reporting firms included those library fines, traffic tickets and gym memberships. So that's kind of interesting. But, um, I think this is a big one because I've even talked to people that they completely, you know, they were in college and they had a medical bill that just kind of went over their head and it was a couple hundred bucks, but it was on your credit report and hurting it. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think me personally, I think this is a, a a good step in the right direction. Yeah, I don't disagree with this at all. I mean, one thing that always surprises me about
2: kind of just hospitals in general is name another industry where you just don't know what the cost is going to be until you get a bill in the mail. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty bad. I'm sure they have justifications for it, like mm-hmm. as to why it is that way. Yeah, and I'm sure it has to do with the complex setup of reimbursements of Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance companies, and so forth. But still, it just still perplexes me. It's just
1: an opaque setup. Yeah, it is. And I can relate to this because when I had my shoulder surgery in November of last year, I didn't obviously know what it was going to be up front. Um, but now I just have like bills that are still like trickling in you know, every other week or every couple this of weeks person, this person, anesthesiologist testing. Blah, right. Blah, blah, and, blah. I'm like, and I'm sitting here. I'm like, I mean, it's a bill. I, I got to pay it. I just I don't I have no idea if it's right or not. Yeah. You know, who picked that number? Right. So um, it's interesting. So hopefully that clears up a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, next last thing that I have, uh, just a short one. It was a quote that I saw by Howard Marks. Um, He said, when things go badly, people become cautious. Then their caution causes things to go well. And when things go well, they become incautious. I think that's a forever cycle. And I completely agree with him. You just keep repeating that cycle over and over and over for decades and decades and decades, and it never stops. Fear, greed, fear, greed, fear, greed. Right. You know, go back
2: to when COVID hit in 2020, you know. Everyone hated the stock market in February and March with just the drastic correction it had. By the end of the year, greed was back into vogue. People
1: were buying YOLO option calls and <laughs> everything was great. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that that uh, that has summed up the past couple of years that we've seen here. So and I don't think it's going to change. No, I don't think it will either. So. All right. Well, I have a little bit uh, more
2: topics than normal. I got about five things I'd like to discuss with our listeners and viewers, Mark. So I'm gonna go a little quicker than I normally do. I'm not gonna dive down as deep. The deepest one I'll go on is my first one, which has to do with some interesting data points on inflation, okay? The source of this data is Bespoke Investment Group on April 7th. And they had a note that had to do a lot about, you know, data points with inflation mark. And the first one had to do with used car prices. And the chart that they initially showed was from Mannheim used auto wholesale price index. And it shows the month over month change and mark for March. It dropped a lot. It dropped 3.85 percent. The index did.
1: And people, uh, you know, on, you know, just hearing that they're like, Matt, that's that's really not that much. But it puts it in perspective on how big of the move is relative to the moves that we've seen since 1995.
2: Exactly. So Jenna will put this chart up uh, for our YouTube viewers right now. In addition, uh, for our uh, traditional podcast listeners, Mark, you want to remind them and
1: how they could capture this chart? Yeah, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or on our Facebook page uh, or LinkedIn page. They're both Jessup Wealth Management.
2: So on these two charts, one goes back to 1995, month-over-month month change, as Mark was telling you. In addition, we have a chart that just shows the prices on a graphical basis going back to 2018. And what you're going to see is this dramatic rise during COVID. What's the main cause? Supply constraints. New cars aren't being produced at the same level they were before. And what it does is it makes the prices of used cars go up, supply and demand we were actually starting to see that at least initially crest and saw a contraction of almost 4% in a single month. So then I got curious. Okay. So Mm I, I dove a little deeper. Okay. So I got some information from Mannheim on their, on their website and it talked about why they, why they think Mark, they saw the dip they did in the month of March. I want to share this with you because I find it interesting and I want your reaction. And I quote, The dealer track estimates indicate that used retail sales were down 15% year-over-year for cars. The issuance of tax refunds is several weeks behind the normal pace. Based on IRS statistics through March 22nd, they estimate that 45% of this year's likely number of tax refunds has been issued, when in the same week in 2019... 71% of refunds have already been dispersed. The market will likely see a stronger April performance as a majority of refunds are expected uh, to have been distributed as the month starts in the average refund refund is at a new record and up 12% year over year. So we will see higher demand that brings prices back up in April, or will this data set continue to fall? I'm going to keep my eye on this one, Mark, because this is obviously a big component into this consumer price index data that we're getting shelters, roughly a third of it. And then next is food and then transportation cost big component. We start to need to see things like this crest and come
1: down. If inflation overall is going to get better. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're starting to see signs of that, you know, with, um, you know, obviously mortgage rates increasing, the demand for new mortgages has come in a little bit, uh, used car prices are coming in a little bit. So, you know, if we start to see this, you know, trickle down effect of, you know, energy prices coming in uh, because there's not as much demand to buy goods and services right now because of the inflation. You know, could be on the verge of seeing inflation start to decelerate over the next several months. That's right. And then behind the scenes,
2: one of the biggest impacts of food cost is the transportation side of it. We start to see diesel come down. We start to see employment get better. That's going to help the the, the price of food products. Mm -hmm. All right. My next piece is an update on the Chinese economy. I know we talked about Shanghai being closed down. This is a tweet from Michael Goodwell on April 5th, and he had a chart of the China general services business activity index, and it's showing a dramatic drop. And I don't use that word lightly. I mean, 50 uh, is a number that indicates anything higher than that shows an expansion mark. Anything lower than that shows a contraction. I mean, it came in at 42. And this is extremely abnormal. Um, Jenna will put up the chart for our YouTube viewers right now. And for those listening on traditional podcast, You can get this chart from our show notes. It goes back to 2008. Uh, You know, we haven't seen quite a contraction like this. Uh, Only other time was during the COVID shutdowns. Mm -hmm. Now, so if you, it definitely caught my eye. And there's a couple uh, things it made me think about. First, I want to talk about a point that I made several weeks ago on the podcast. First, how long can China afford for oil prices to be above $100 globally? before it starts to hurt their export-driven economy. In addition, as you talked about earlier, the country's still attempting to have a zero-COVID policy, which they seem to be struggling and maintaining. So next, I found a chart on shipping rates, okay? And one thing I talked about on the podcast previously is the cost to ship goods, especially internationally, say from China to the U.S. or China to, to Europe. That's also falling off a cliff on the cost side. This chart will also be on our show notes and it's going to show the cost for a 40-foot um, container, okay? And so this definitely seems to be normalizing after major supply disruptions. Are we going to have some supply disruptions from having such a major city like Shanghai shut down for a week? It's very possible. But I think what I'm starting to see the tea leaves of is these middle market wholesalers are starting to get inventories back to more of a normal level. That's what the data is kind of indicating to me. And if I had to give you my best guess, this is my personal opinion. I think the peak point peak point of pain for inflation and supply chain issues is still sometime this second quarter that we're in. Is it going to be in April? Is it going to be in June? That's anyone's guess. It's a purely personal opinion based upon the data I'm seeing. And you know, we'll see if this plays its way out the way I'm thinking it will. But as employment gets better, the supply chains get better, as the Fed continues to hike rates, as the consumer shows constraint on prices, the cure for high oil prices, the cure for high prices in general is high prices. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to start to see things get better after this quarter.
1: We'll see if I'm right. Yeah. Well, it's encouraging to see, you know, more data like this, like shipping containers begin to roll over and not be as costly as it was. I mean, you know, just in 2021 to ship, you know, 40 foot container from Shanghai to New York, it was just over $16,000 and now it's down to less than $12,000. So, you in know, pre-COVID, where was it? Tell them. Uh, Pre-COVID, <laughs> is like three and a half thousand dollars
2: yeah that's crazy yeah Yeah. and so what you're also having is probably additional inventory of ships probably coming online you know you have i don't need it right away i'm willing to wait to pay a lower rate all that stuff comes into play yeah and as the wholesalers get restocked you know they don't need it this quick the middle market so i'll be curious to see how this plays its way out again when you're in the middle of it and you see these headlines inflation feels like it's not going to get better anytime soon. yeah scary Scary. So uh, three more items. Next, let's not forget that April is usually a seasonally strong month. It's been a bad start to April, but, you know, we also forget about how strong the last two weeks of Q1 was. It was really strong. So you have a little bit of profit taking here. And I'm insinuating next that, you know, we have earnings season right around the corner. So what do we have happening? We have companies reporting the first quarter earnings. And I think there's a lot of disconnections and a lot of names between fundamentals and the reality that their prices are trading at. And so if we look back in history, going back to 1964 mark for the S&P 500, April tends to be one of the stronger months. On average, it's up 1.7 percent and it's positive 74 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, we are not in normal times. This is very abnormal the way the market has been since COVID hit. And so am I trying to insinuate that we're going to be up this month? No, but we're in a seasonally strong period. I think there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. And if companies can surprise on earnings, I think that, you know, you could see prices head higher. We'll see if that ends up happening. Okay. Mm Because it could work the opposite way. Right. Right. Now, the next thing is I have as a point is what does Wall Street, the quote unquote sell side view of the potential upside in price targets? So, for those that are, uh, I'd say, are more kind of advanced in, in, in investing in general, a lot of firms will come out with research on companies, and they will post what they feel is their 12-month price target, okay? So, I'm going arbitri- to arbitrarily pick one of the largest size companies by market cap, Apple, and this is not a recommendation for or against the name, but what's what happens a lot is firms will come out and say, I think the 12-month price target on this name is X amount. Okay. It tends to be absolutely useless looking back at it, but that's right. <laughs> and so what this, what this is, this is a chart from top down charts on April 6th. And it's no surprise that the heavier hit sectors of the market, things like communication services, consumer discretionary information technology have the largest difference between current prices versus wall street's projected target. Over the next 12 months. Now, my point here is tread carefully. This should not be your sole single data point to make a decision whether to buy or sell a security, right? This should be a data, a data component of many things that you're considering before an investor buys or sells a security. So I saw this, and it's kind of like a word of caution mark, and you can probably talk a little bit deeper about it. I just didn't want people to see this type of news, see these price targets, take them as this is, you know, biblical,
1: this is going to happen. Will you talk a little bit deeper about this? Yeah, well, I, I don't think this should be surprising to anybody because, you know, the highest uh, price target sectors right now are communication services, uh, consumer discretionary and and tech and all three of those sectors have gotten smacked over the past half a year. Sure. Right. So this this shouldn't be as surprising, um, you know, shouldn't be surprising at all, really, to anybody. But, you know, just to, to to play the other side of it, too, it doesn't mean that they can't keep going lower and going Absolutely. lower relative to the S&P 500, too. So, um, you know, and over on the right side of this chart, energy has the lowest amount of upside from price targets. But. Again, that doesn't mean that energy prices can't keep going higher or energy stock prices can't keep going higher, right? So, um, yeah, it's a it's a great chart. And, you know, just have to know that... This is you know, a these, data point. It's a data point. These, these price targets are higher for these higher growth areas uh, if these, you know, companies can get back on track. But, you know, it doesn't mean that their, you know, their stock price can get cut in half before they return to their all-time highs. That's right. So, the, so. The, my, my message is... Wall Street price
2: targets for individual stocks it should be a data point, not a sole decision maker. My opinion, word of caution type of, uh, of message for our viewers and listeners. Mm-hmm. Okay. My last thing is a quote by Warren Buffett. W B. I got a quote for him. Ready? The stock market is designed to transfer money from the active to the patient.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that it's one. pretty good. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a couple good ones, I think, but, um, but yeah, that's one of my, one of my favorites too. You know, he, uh, also I think was a guy that was like, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, meaning, you know, when everyone's fearful and think the world's going to end, you should be on the opposite end of that and, and buying. Yep. Um, and same thing, you know, when everybody's so euphoric about everything, that's when you should be trimming or, you know, rebalancing and doing all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's it's tough uh again because we're in this instant gratification environment that we have been in at least in my opinion for the past several years that you know a lot of the times the best thing to do is sit on your hands, be patient, enjoy life, don't look at the stock market 25 times a day and be stressed out about it.
2: Exactly. So one thing I'm going to try to dig up over the next couple of podcasts is um JP Morgan does a research piece about the average, the true average return of an individual investor versus what the S&P has done. And I think they've been doing this research on this piece for a couple of decades. And I found an old chart of it, and I got to find a newer one. But this is not an exaggeration. The last data point I had going back like a decade is like the average investor has done about 3% a year. And the S&P is still in double digits. Mm -hmm. That's despite, you know, the way the market's been recently, and other sell offs that have recently occurred. And on the cusp, why is that? It's because human nature of emotions of fear and greed. And when you start to see things going bad, the emotional thought is, it's going to continue, I have to take action to stop this from happening, and that money tends to come in, Mark, when it's comfortable, when a lot of the easy money's been made on the recovery, and that's why the average individual investor has a long-term average of only 3% a year, Mm -hmm. and so this is why I really enjoy what we're doing in this podcast, because I think we're doing a lot to provide perspective, and we're doing a lot to provide true data points to a lot of times to what's going on. Yeah. And so when I see quotes like this, it's a good kind of reminder that there's nothing wrong with being patient. Mm -hmm. The biggest advantage you have as an individual investor is the time horizon that's on your side. When someone retires, they don't need all that money in two or three years. They're taking most likely systematic monthly income, but the advantage you have is the time on your side. I just want to keep reminding people about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's why it's so, it's so important to start early every, you know, We've probably said this a billion times on here before, but the biggest regret that people have that we talk to is, I, I wish I started earlier to give you that length of runway to be able to make changes in a positive manner that when you're in retirement, you don't need, you know all of that money all at once. That's right. So as we uh, wrap up, I
2: know uh, we're gonna invite Taylor on the podcast next to do the financial planning topic of the week. Mark, is
1: there anything you would like to personally end with before we invite Taylor on? No, I don't think so. Um, As you said last week, earnings season is going to get into full swing over the next couple of weeks here. So um, we'll be prepared and and ready for that. But other than that, hope everyone has a great shortened holiday week and uh, happy Easter to
2: everybody. Thanks for being being on this, Mark. And I'll have Taylor on here next to the financial planning topic. All right, we'll see you next week. So as uh, Taylor switches seats here uh, with Mark, uh, for those of you that are new to hearing Taylor's name, uh, Taylor Ledbetter is one of our wealth advisors at our, at our firm. Uh, she also handles all of our financial planning work uh, for all of our clients. Uh, welcome, Taylor.
3: It's good to be back.
2: You're a fan favorite for those that have been um, listening to the podcast um, in recent months. And so um, we, we feel blessed to have you back on the podcast what topic have you selected for our listeners and viewers this time?
3: So I'm going to be talking about 72T distributions mm-hmm. from tax-deferred accounts. Okay. And the article I read was by Michael Kites, and it's mm-hmm. called Strategies for Maximizing Rule 72T Early Distributions. Okay. And I'm going to kind of make this into two parts because the article I read was extremely complex and long. So... Today I'm just gonna overview what a 72T payment is and go over different methods. And then next time I'm on, I'm gonna talk about strategies to maximize those payments um, and just some new policies that came into place this year.
2: Great, I look forward to this.
3: So an overview of the 72T payments. When you withdraw money from a tax deferred retirement account, prior to age 59 and a half so it's going to be a 401k or a traditional IRA, you are taxed at your ordinary income tax rate and you also have a 10% early distribution penalty. Now there are certain emergency situations where you can avoid this 10% penalty and those include medical costs that exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. Okay. If you need to pay for medical insurance premiums and you're unemployed. All right. If you have a disability, if you have an inherited IRA from a non-spouse, qualified higher education expenses, first-time home purchases up to $10,000, and then 72 T payments. Got it all of those items would exclude you from that early distribution penalty of 10%.
2: Got it, under the age of 59 and a half. Correct. Yep.
3: So a 72T distribution is also referred to as a series of substantially equal periodic payments. So once someone begins to take these payments every single year, they must continue to do so for either five years or until they reach age 59 and a half, whichever one's longer. Correct. And this is really interesting. If you modify this payment schedule while you're taking the payments, the 10% early distribution penalty will be applied to all pre tax distributions taken prior to age 59 and a half. And the IRS also will apply interest to those amounts. Got it. So, I have an example to kind of give a better visualization of what I was just explaining. So, say in 2012, at age 45, you establish a 72T payment schedule to make periodic distributions from a traditional IRA. And this schedule is set to conclude in 2026 when you turn 59 and a half. Okay. Because it's either... Five years or until you turn 59 and a half. Which is whichever longer. one's longer. So, say it's now 2022 and you completely forget to take your annual distribution. This technically breaks the schedule, and as a result, the 10% penalty will be retroactively applied to all of your distributions that you've taken since 2012. Okay. Additionally, interest will apply to the 2012 10% penalty amount as though the amount had always been owed since 2012, but not paid. This results in 10 years worth of interest applied to the 2012 payment. Yep. So the IRS gives very little guidance on how to properly calculate these annual distributions. But there are three different methods that you can use for this calculation. I had actually only heard of the RMD method. I hadn't heard of um, the amortization or annuitization method. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason I wanted to kind of research this more. Yes. Because the RMD method is used most commonly. That's right. So all three methods rely on a life expectancy or mortality table and the amortization and annuitization methods require the use of a reasonable interest rate. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna briefly go over each of these methods. First, I'll talk about the RMD. This one is super simple to determine this annual distribution amount. You just take your current account balance and divide it by an appropriate life expectancy factor kind of similar to the way the RMDs are calculated every single year.
2: For those over age 72.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these life expectancy factor tables can be found on the IRS website. So individuals who use this RMD method to calculate their 72T payments start off the payment schedule and are not permitted to switch to another method. So they can't switch to the amortization or annuitization method now to briefly go over the other two methods so distributions calculated when using the amortization and annuitization method remain level from year to year whereas the RMD those fluctuate every single year correct so when calculating these payments, they're determined by amortizing the individual's account balance over a number of years and using an appropriate interest rate. The annuitization method, this gets a little wordy. Yes, that's good. So okay. It's determined by dividing the account balance by an annuity factor that is the present value of an annuity of $1 per year beginning at the employee's age and continuing for the employee's life
2: and that's how (laughs) that calculation is determined
3: yeah i mean to kind of simplify that you look at the annuity factor table that's on the irs website and correlate that with the age of the employee and then divide that by the account balance
2: got it and so are you going to talk about this a little bit deeper next week as well?
3: Yeah, so I'm going to just, the article goes through different strategies to maximize those payments. And there's a new policy that came out in 2022 that really affects these these two methods, not the RMD method. Um, because when calculating these payments, I actually had to use a financial calculator. Mm-hmm. The IRS doesn't have any kind of formula for calculating those payments um so like i said you just use life expectancy factors reasonable interest rates um there's no straight formula for these payments so
2: and again this comes into play for people that want to retire or take systematic income before Mm -hmm. 59 and a half and this is an efficient way for them to do it and avoid that 10 percent penalty
3: it's a real, it's a really simple concept. But when you dig into the details, it gets really complex.
2: Yeah, and how you actually set it up and what mm-hmm. that annual amount is.
3: Right. Yeah, and just kind of a preview. When I come on next time and talk about the different policies, um, it has actually increased the amount you can take by a pretty significant amount. Yes. I mean, I saw some examples where the payments you can take more than doubled when compared what to what you
2: were able to take before. Mm-hmm, right. I like the flexibility they added into it. I think it's great.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to come on here and kind of talk about the three different methods. Cause I feel like introduce
2: the concept. Yeah. Yep.
3: The first, the RMD method is what's talked about the most. So
2: yeah. And I think even beyond that, I think most people don't know there's an option to get mm-hmm. systematic annual income before 59 and a half and avoid that 10% penalty Mm -hmm. so I think just the the introduction of what a 72 t distribution is is going to be I think opening Mm -hmm. uh, opening a lot of eyes for those people who listen to the podcast below that age
3: Mm -hmm. I agree because I mean I've said this before but everyone's situation is so individualistic so this may work for some people but not for others
2: no, I think this is great, Taylor. So we'll definitely have you on for the next podcast to continue this conversation on 72Ts. And what I really like about this, this is one of those series with you that we can reference with clients who want to learn more about this topic. Mm-hmm. So yeah. thank you for being a part of this.
3: Yeah, you're welcome.
2: So uh, we just have one listener question, Taylor, and I'll kind of address it. This question is from Carrie. It has to do with a question regarding a bill that is currently going through Congress. And this bill is called the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. And this is starting to really scare big cap tech. And it's really targeted towards the likes of uh, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. You know, these companies have developed kind of their own systems. And, you know, um, the Congress is making an argument or certain members of Congress are making an argument that it is a hindrance to competition. And so my reply for you, Carrie, is, you know, these bills will most likely change a lot before they ever get to the president's desk for a signature. And um, it's tough to make investment decisions based upon either, you know, speculation or speculation of what a bill is going to end up looking like. And so with that being said, um, you know, my reply is, yes, we are aware that this bill is currently being debated and discussed right now in Congress. But ultimately speaking, you know, this is something that, you know, we're going to wait ultimately to see what the actual details end up being. And my last point for you, Carrie, is uh, these companies are very smart, and they're most likely going to form workarounds. And the best analogy I can provide is, um, a country or a state that enacts very, let's say, hardcore tax policy, the wealthy are gonna find a way, Taylor, to avoid those taxes, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Either the money's gonna be they'll move residency. I mean, why do you think so many people are leaving the high tax states and going to places like Florida, Texas, mm-hmm. Tennessee? Exactly. Or if it's a if it's a nation doing it, you'll have the wealthy people move the money offshore. It's no different when I think it comes to kind of this, this big cap tech innovation side of it. And, you know, if, if they're going to find their workarounds, they have deep pockets, they're going to find ways to still make a buck. Mm-hmm. And even if there is, let's say, disruptions to their business on a short term basis, so with that being said, uh, my reply is, uh, we're aware of it, we're watching it, but we're not gonna make decisions until we actually know what it ends up being, and w- those can really be clarified as to how they're gonna financially impact these companies. So that's my kind of reply to, uh, to carry on this. Mm-hmm. Anything, Taylor, you wanna add to that?
3: No, I mean, I agree, you can't make decisions now based on something that's still being worked on, so. Exactly,
2: and we can mm-hmm. see a lot of changes in it. Mm-hmm. Just like when they were debating tax bills, you know, uh, over the past couple of years, they were talking about some serious uh, tax hikes that mm-hmm. didn't actually end up happening. So we'll see if, if if this has a lot of bark and no bite, or it does.
3: Yep. Good it'll way of all, saying it. Yeah, it'll all work out for the best.
2: Yeah. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off, Taylor. Thank you again for being a part of the financial planning topic of the week. And listeners and viewers, thanks for being a part of episode 145 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and we will see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites, Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict.